Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every Wednesday, as well as every Wednesday on YouTube as well. And you're not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are discussing a very, very highly requested case by you guys. And it was one that I had actually never heard of before until I started doing research on it. And that is the murder of Bill McGuire, otherwise known as the suitcase murders. This is a really, really wild case and one that has some differing opinions towards the end of it. So I'm really excited to hear what you guys have to say about it. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. So Bill McGuire was born on September 21st, 1964 to his parents, William and Ruth in the Bronx, New York. He was one of several siblings and went to high school in Vernon, New Jersey. And right after graduating high school, Bill went on to enlist in the Navy, where he spent the next two years. After returning from the Navy, Bill had decided to go back to school to study computer programming. And in order to help him finance his way through going back to school, Bill also got a job, a part-time job on the side, being a waiter at a local restaurant. And it was while having his job at the restaurant that he also met another waitress there, and that would be a woman named Melanie. So who is Melanie? Melanie was born on October 8th of 1972 in Ridgewood, New Jersey to her mother, Linda. Shortly after Melanie was born, Linda went on to marry a man named Michael Caparero, who became Melanie's stepfather. And because Melanie's biological father really wasn't in the picture, Michael really raised Melanie like she was his own. Melanie also had a brother, and together the four of them lived in Middletown Township, which is located in New Jersey. Melanie attended Middletown High School, and after graduating from there, she enrolled in Rutgers University and double majored in math and psychology before graduating in 1994, which was the same year that she met Bill. Now, after graduating from Rutgers, Melanie went on to enroll in nursing school, and in order to help herself finance her way through nursing school, that is when she got the job at the restaurant being a waitress. So that is something that both Melanie and Bill had in common. They were both just kind of using this waitressing gig as a way to earn extra money on the side to help pave their way through school. Now, something about Melanie is she is extremely intelligent. She ended up graduating second in her class from what's now known as the Rarity Bay Medical Center in 1997. But like I mentioned, prior to that in 1994 is when she met Bill. And when Bill and Melanie first met, the two of them hit it off right away. The chemistry was almost undeniable, and that's what everyone at the restaurant said. Everyone who saw the two of them together just knew that there was an immediate attraction, and they really gravitated towards each other from the very beginning. So then in 1999, Bill and Melanie actually ended up getting married, and it was that same year in 1999 that Melanie landed her dream career being a nurse at a fertility clinic. 
Melanie was completely loved and adored by her coworkers. She was an incredible addition to their team. She was said to be very professional, but very loving and caring. And she was really responsible and she just knew what she was doing. So she got that job in 1999, and around that time as well, Bill also landed his job as a computer programmer. So both Bill and Melanie not only were embarking on this new chapter of being married, but they were also embarking on their individual chapters of having these new careers that they had been working for for so long. About a year after they got married in the year 2000 is when Bill and Melanie welcomed their first son, and two years later, they had their second son as well. Now, at the time that they had their second son, they had been living in Woodbridge Township, which is in New Jersey, and they had an apartment there, but Melanie and Bill decided that they needed somewhere with more space now that they had two kids and they wanted a place to grow and expand their family, so they decided that the best thing to do was to move into an actual house in Warren County, which is also in New Jersey, but it's about an hour and 15 minutes away from Woodbridge Township. So at this point in the timeline, we're talking spring of 2004, Melanie and Bill actually closed on their dream house on April 28th of the year 2004. And this was a really, really big milestone for their family. And they were eager to begin this new chapter of their lives together because on the outside looking in, as it typically always is, this family seemed to have it all. They had the dream careers, they had the beautiful children, they had the beautiful marriage, and everyone thought that this was just such an amazing step for them to now take getting this house. All of their friends were really excited for them. Their families were very excited for them. However, unfortunately... Taking this next step and moving into this house would never actually end up happening. So fast forward about a week after closing on the house, we're talking May 5th of 2004, there was a group of fishermen, I'm talking two adults and two children, so not professional fishermen by any means, but these two dads and their sons had rented this boat out in Chesapeake Bay, which is in Virginia Beach. So you had two dads and two sons, and they were fishing in Chesapeake Bay. Now, if you don't know about Chesapeake Bay, because neither did I until this case, basically the Chesapeake Bay stretches across six states, and those six states are Delaware, Maryland, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia. Now, this group of dads and their sons were in Virginia at the time, but they were fishing in the Chesapeake Bay on this boat. The dads had let their sons skip school for that day, so the boys were really, really excited, and they were just going to have a very wholesome, fun fishing afternoon together. So the four of them got onto the boat and went out into the bay, and while they were all out there fishing, one of the younger boys had noticed that there was a suitcase floating around in the water. And when this boy saw this, he immediately lit up because in his mind, he thought that this was buried treasure. That's what he kept telling his dad. He thought that this was treasure and they needed to bring in the suitcase so they can find 
what's inside of it. Now, the adults, the dads, did say that they were hesitant at first because it is a little bit sketchy to just bring in a random suitcase. However, they thought it was going to be harmless and just decided to play along with their kids. But the adults noticed when they pulled up the suitcase into the boat that the suitcase was abnormally heavy. They didn't expect it to be that heavy. And when they finally got it onto the boat and unzipped it, which one of the younger boys was the one who unzipped it, they discovered two human legs that were cut from the knees down wrapped in black trash bags. And as you can imagine, this was absolutely traumatizing for everyone involved. You have these two young boys who think that they're on this fun fishing trip with their dads. They see this suitcase and, you know, the dads are playing along with it and just wanting to show their sons a good time. And all of a sudden they open this suitcase and you have human remains in there. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. So the adults end up calling the authorities who arrive on the scene right away. Now, when authorities arrived and they took a look at the remains, they noticed that this definitely seemed to be more of a fresh dismemberment. The remains weren't badly decomposed and they weren't very swollen as some remains will do if they're thrown into water. They usually get soaked up by water and will swell, but this was not the case. Now, because the remains that were found were only legs, police had no idea what they were looking at. They had no idea who their victim was. And because of that, they had no leads. They had no idea where to begin looking. However, they were fairly confident that because they had one set of remains, that there were going to be more remains found in the coming days. And that is exactly what happened. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. On May 11th, 2004, there was a college student on Fisherman's Island, which is just about seven minutes away from Chesapeake Bay. Now, again, just so we're understanding where we are geographically, Melanie and Bill lived in New Jersey, which is about a five and a half hour drive from Chesapeake Bay. So there's definitely some distance in between the two of them. Now, while this student was on Fisherman's Island, she had found a dark suitcase that had appeared to be washed up onto shore. And immediately when approaching the suitcase, the student said that she smelled something horrific and she smelled what she thought was a decomposing body. So she actually never even opened the suitcase. She just immediately called authorities. And because they were already aware of the remains that had been found several days prior, they didn't open the suitcase either. And they just shipped it off to the medical examiner. 
And it's a good thing that this student did not open the suitcase because she more than likely would have been traumatized for life because inside of this second suitcase, there was a decapitated head and a dismembered torso. The medical examiner was able to conclude that the torso had two bullet wounds and the head also had one bullet wound as well. Then, several days later, on May 16th, 2004, the third and final suitcase was found. Again, this suitcase was found very close to where the first suitcase was discovered in the Chesapeake Bay near the bridge, and in this third suitcase were the dismembered arms of the victim. Now, at this point, even though police did not have a proper ID, they had no idea who exactly their victim was, they were able to put together a composite sketch of what the victim looked like because they did have the decapitated head. And once they were able to put together the composite sketch, they released it to the public on May 21st, 2004. So again, just looking at this timeline, May 5th, was the day that the first suitcase was found, and May 21st is the day that all suitcases had been recovered and the composite sketch had been released. Now, several days after this composite sketch was released, police ended up getting a phone call from a woman named Susan Rice, who claimed that the composite sketch looked eerily similar to one of her friends, Bill McGuire. Susan's husband was actually very, very good friends with Bill. And once this composite sketch was released, Susan had approached her husband and said, this looks like Bill. And of course, when you're seeing it on TV, in the media, her husband's first response was to say, that's not Bill. Why would that be Bill? However, after trying to get in contact with Bill and not getting an answer, Susan decided that the best thing to do was to just tell police what they thought, which was that the composite sketch resembled very closely to their friend, Bill McGuire. Now, once police got that tip from Susan, they were actually able to confirm through fingerprints that the man in the suitcase was in fact, Bill McGuire. And once they were able to confirm Bill's identity is when they contacted Melanie and let her know that they had recovered his body. Now, according to Melanie, she said that when the police broke the news to her, she, quote, burst into tears and probably sobbed for about an hour or so. All I remember is my mother holding me end quote. So that is what she remembers happening that day. Now, once his identity was confirmed, the investigation was actually fairly quickly turned over from the Virginia Police Department to the New Jersey Police Department. So you might be sitting there asking yourself, how did we get here? How did we get to Melanie and Bill signing on their dream house on April 28th to just about a week later, his dismembered remains being discovered in the Chesapeake Bay? And it's a very valid question. And it's a question that police had from the very beginning. How did we get here? Because from police's standpoint, they never even knew that Bill was missing. Bill was last seen on the night of April 28th, the day that he closed with Melanie on his house. That was the last day that anyone had seen Bill. And so from April 28th, all the way to May 21st, when the composite sketch was released, there was never a missing persons report 
made for Bill. No one called in to report him missing, so police never even knew to look for Bill because no one seemed to be concerned that he was gone. Now, the only person that seemed to have the slightest bit of concern about Bill's whereabouts was his older sister, Cindy. Now, Cindy had called around to some of Bill's friends after she hadn't been able to get in hold of him for several weeks. She had spoken to Susan Rice, who again was one of John's good friends, and she had also spoken to Melanie, who gave her a very interesting story in regards to the last time that she saw Bill. According to Melanie, she claimed that on the 28th of April, her and Bill had gotten into a massive argument that resulted in Bill being physically abusive towards her. And then after the argument was over, Bill stormed out of the house and he hadn't been back since. According to Melanie, she claimed that the argument was over living locations. She said that Bill mentioned that he wanted to move to Virginia because he had friends in Virginia, he loved Virginia, and Melanie wanted to stay in New Jersey because they had just signed on for this amazing house and she was really excited about it. She had family in New Jersey. She didn't think it was very practical for them to now up and move to Virginia all of a sudden. Both of them had their jobs in New Jersey it just didn't make a whole lot of sense and Melanie said that when she explained this to Bill he got increasingly angry and Melanie claimed that Bill then shoved a dryer sheet into her mouth pushed her up against the wall and slapped her across the face Melanie said that after that had happened Melanie reached and grabbed for their youngest son and ran into the bathroom and locked the door Melanie then claimed that while she was in the bathroom, Bill was banging on the door saying that he was going to leave and never come back and that his kids were going to grow up without a father and it was going to be all Melanie's fault. And that is when he stormed out of the house and Melanie had not seen nor heard from him since. Now, according to Melanie, she claimed that these types of arguments between her and Bill happened fairly frequently, so she learned not to really take anything that Bill said super seriously. So when Bill walked out and said that he was never going to come back and that his kids were going to grow up without a father, she didn't really take that to heart because he had said those kinds of things in the past and he always came back before, so she thought this time was going to be no different. But again, you might be sitting there wondering, well, weeks had gone by and Melanie hadn't heard from Bill nor seen Bill, so why wouldn't she file a missing persons report? Now, according to Melanie, she said that she thought that she knew where Bill was the entire time because Melanie claimed that Bill had a gambling addiction. So according to Melanie, she said that when her and Bill would get into these kinds of fights, he would storm out of the house and drive to Atlantic City, which is also in New Jersey. And there's a lot of gambling there and a lot of partying that goes on there. And so every time that those fights would occur between the two of them, Bill oftentimes would just go to Atlantic City for a little bit and cool off before he came back. And that's exactly what Melanie claimed she thought he was doing this time as well well. Now, according to Melanie, another big reason that she did not file the missing persons report was because she was planning on divorcing Bill after this. She claimed that several days after the fight ensued, she had gone to a divorce attorney and sat down with the divorce attorney to talk to them. And according to Melanie, the divorce attorney actually advised her not to go 
and file a missing persons report. Not really sure the exact reasoning behind that, but that is what Melanie claims the attorney advised her. And not only that, Melanie claims that the day that Bill walked out of the house, the day after that, she had gone to file a restraining order against Bill. So in Melanie's mind, she was explaining to Cindy as well as this is exactly what she explained to the police when they sat down to talk to her as well. She told them that whole story. She claimed that she was done with the marriage. So in her mind, it wasn't really a thought to file a missing persons report. She didn't really see the reason because she was over it. She didn't really want anything to do with Bill anymore. She was over the marriage and she wanted to move on. Now, obviously you can make the counter argument of, but still, you know, like that's still your husband at the end of the day. And wouldn't you be a little bit concerned or worried? And that's exactly the standpoint that the police took in this. However, these allegations of abuse were actually not the hardest thing in the world to believe because it wouldn't be the first time that Bill would be accused of something like this. Now, something that I didn't see in a lot of the reports that I read, which was actually a little shocking that I didn't see this, was that Bill had actually been married once before. He was married to a woman named Marcy Polk, and Marcy and Bill had actually met when they were in high school. So they were high school sweethearts, and then shortly after they graduated high school, the two of them got married. Now, the timeline of all of this is very confusing. All the reports pretty much say something different. However, the one consistency in those reports is that Melanie and Marcy kind of overlapped with Bill, meaning that Bill had an affair with Melanie while he was still married to Marcy. And according to Marcy, she claimed that when she found out about Melanie, because she did find out about the affair while they were still together, she confronted Melanie and told her that the two of them should confront Bill together. And they did do that. However, Melanie at the end of the day was still very interested in continuing to pursue a relationship with Bill. So Marcy claimed that once she realized that that was the direction that this quote unquote confrontation was going in, she basically just wiped her hands of Bill right then and there. In regards to Melanie, Marcy actually claimed that she told her, quote, good luck, and that it probably wasn't the first time he was cheating on me, end quote. Now, Marcy actually did file a restraining order towards Bill as well in 1995, claiming physical and emotional abuse after Bill had allegedly thrown rocks through her window one night. So again, this wasn't the first time that Bill had been accused of some sort of physical or mental abuse before. So it wasn't like this allegation was coming out of thin air. And Melanie knew that. Melanie was very aware of the past relationship that Bill had had with Marcy and all of the struggles that came along with it. Now, I mentioned earlier how Melanie claimed that she was completely distraught when she heard that Bill's remains were recovered. However, according to authorities, they claim that the situation was quite the opposite. When giving Melanie the news about Bill, authorities claimed that she never asked any questions, nor did she seem concerned that he died. Authorities remember Melanie never even asked how he died, and that was something that stood out to them from the very beginning, because you would think, let's say that even if you are getting a divorce, even if you are wiping your hands of this man and you are done with him, this is still the father of your children, wouldn't you be a little bit 
concerned or question what had gone on just a little bit. That was what the authorities were thinking. Then four days after Melanie had been notified about Bill's death, she actually went ahead and filed for divorce against him. Now that definitely raised a little bit of a red flag for police because they thought it was just very soon, which again, this is just all very circumstantial because as we know, everyone grieves differently. However, from the police's standpoint, they thought that it was just a little fast to already be moving on so quickly. And Bill had passed away in a very brutal way. His dismembered body parts were quite literally found in suitcases, washed up onto shore in Chesapeake Bay. And you would think that that alone would create many questions or concerns or how did this happen? Why did this happen? But Melanie really didn't even blink about it. And so authorities ended up bringing Melanie in, not for an interrogation, just because they wanted to get some backstory as to the last time she saw Bill, what was going on, if he had said anything to her that could have implicated that he was in trouble or someone was after him, you know, just if there was any piece of information that he had let her in on, because after all, she was his wife. Now, when Melanie walked into the police department to speak to authorities, she actually brought two attorneys with her, which again, police thought was a little strange just because this wasn't an interrogation. They were just asking her some, you know, follow-up questions. However, it was in this meeting that Melanie did confirm that the suitcases that Bill's remains were recovered in did in fact belong to them which automatically struck police as odd because they're listening to Melanie talk about this heated argument, you know, this screaming match, and then Bill storms out. Nowhere in the story does she say he stormed out and he took these three suitcases with him. She just says that he was so full of rage, so full of anger, and he stormed out of the house and didn't look back. Now, it was also in this meeting that Melanie brought up questions about Bill's car. She had asked police if they had recovered the car, which police told her that they had not recovered the car yet. However, they were actively searching for it. Now, during this conversation, Melanie suggested to authorities that they should look for the car in Atlantic City because Bill had a habit of going out to Atlantic City and gambling after they would get into these arguments. So police go out to Atlantic City and search for the car, and lo and behold, they found it. Bill's car was located at the Flamingo Hotel in Atlantic City, and shortly after that, police also got a warrant to search through Bill's apartment, Bill and Melanie's apartment, and when they got to the apartment, they figured out that Melanie had actually sold a lot of Bill's items and it really wasn't even for money that she sold them for she actually just kind of gave it away to a friend of a friend so she was just really just trying to get rid of everything that reminded her of bill anything that bill had she just wanted to completely get him out of the apartment or whatever was left of him out of the apartment and that again struck police as odd So there was a lot of circumstantial evidence floating around. Again, there's nothing physical. There's no physical evidence at this point, but everything just seems a little weird about Melanie. So police actually were able to get a warrant to secretly record Melanie's phone calls. And when they did, they learned that Melanie had been keeping a very big secret 
from them. And that was that Melanie was actually having an affair with a coworker of hers named Brad Miller. Now, Brad worked as a doctor at the fertility clinic that Melanie worked at, and the affair had began when Melanie was pregnant with her and Bill's second son. So this affair had been going on for several years, and when police looked through the messages between Melanie and Brad, they saw that Brad was telling Melanie that she should leave Bill and be with him instead. And when they saw this, it really gave police the one thing that they were looking for, that one missing puzzle piece, which was motive. If Melanie wanted to end her marriage with Bill and start a new relationship and a new life with Brad, that definitely gave her a motive. So police ended up recording 500 phone calls, 500 over a 40 day span. And a lot of those calls were from Melanie to Brad, but also some of those calls were from Melanie to her stepfather, Michael. Now, there is one call that if I can find, I will play it for you. If I can find the link for it, I will play it right here. How you doing? I spoke to, uh, uh, what's his name, about shipping? Alex. I didn't want to say name. Do you understand what I'm saying? Essentially, in this call, you can tell that Melanie and her stepfather are kind of beating around the bush around something. They're almost kind of using, like, their own secret language. They're not naming names of certain people and they're making it clear that they're not naming names. They're saying things like, do you understand what I'm saying? Or you understand what I mean, but they're not really laying out exactly what they mean. So there's a lot of secret hidden messages within these phone calls. So another piece of the puzzle in this case was figuring out where the murder weapon came from, because obviously police knew that Bill had been shot several times, so they knew that they were looking for a gun, and they had checked all the records for gun purchases in New Jersey around the time that Bill had last been seen. However, they came up with nothing. So police decided to expand their search, and they looked in the surrounding states of New Jersey, one of which is Pennsylvania. And when doing this, they discovered that only two days before Bill was last seen, so on April 26th, Melanie had purchased a gun in Pennsylvania. But of course, Melanie had a reason for this. She claimed that Bill had asked her to get the gun for their new house for safety purposes. And because Bill had a misdemeanor in New Jersey, he was not able to purchase the gun. So she ended up going to Pennsylvania to purchase the gun. But again, it doesn't really answer the question as to why she would have to go to Pennsylvania instead of New Jersey. So that still left a couple question marks, but she claimed that Bill wanted her to get the gun and that is why she did it. But again, this case just continues to get more and more bizarre because in the weeks following police and Melanie's initial conversations where she came in to the police department and spoke to them with her lawyers, Melanie actually let police in on another little secret of hers. And that was that on April 30th, so two days after Bill had apparently stormed out of the house and was angry and, you know, just left, Melanie actually went out to Atlantic City herself around midnight and ended up moving Bill's car from what she claims was one casino to the Flamingo Hotel. 
Now, when asked why she would do this, Melanie claimed that she thought it would be funny to make Bill mad. She said that this was something that she did quite often. This wasn't the first time that she did it, and she just kind of did it to get a rise out of him. And so she ended up moving the car to the Flamingo Hotel because she didn't want him to be able to find it. Now, my thing that I think is a little strange about this is I don't really understand why, if this was true and it was just like this, you know, little haha funny prank that she did, why she wouldn't mention it to police in the very beginning, in the first conversation that she had with them. Why would she wait until weeks later? And why would she kind of drag them along in this by telling police, you know, did you find his car? Like maybe you should look in Atlantic City, knowing damn well the entire time where his car was because she had moved it. And Melanie even told police, she said, yeah, I know that that kind of looks weird and, you know, it looks suspicious, but it's just this little prank that I do to him when we get into these arguments. But of course, the circumstantial evidence does not stop there because in the days following Bill's disappearance, when he walked out of the house, police looked at toll footage and they were able to see that in the days following Bill's disappearance, Melanie had made a trip to Delaware and they were able to confirm that through her easy pass, which is again, kind of strange. She went there in the very, very early hours of the morning. She drove down to Delaware and this was weird to police up until they realized that if you were driving from New Jersey to Chesapeake Bay, you have to go through Delaware. But of course, Melanie had a reason. She said that the reason that she went to Delaware so early in the morning in the days after Bill had walked out of the house is because she was going furniture shopping and she wanted to go to Delaware herself because she wouldn't have to pay sales tax on the furniture in Delaware. But weirdly enough, when police contacted EasyPass to get more information about Melanie you know, going through the tolls, they found out that Melanie, as well as an unidentified man, had contacted EasyPass on two separate occasions trying to get the 90 cent charge off of the EasyPass and basically wiped from the history on the EasyPass. That way it wouldn't be able to be traced. And if all of that was not enough, police also discovered that there was a towel found in one of the suitcases that contained Bill's dismembered remains. And that towel was actually the same exact towel that was used at Melanie's workplace at the fertility clinic. There were also green fibers found in one of the bullets in Bill's chest that matched identically to the green fibers that were on Melanie and Bill's green couch. So due to the overwhelming amount of evidence against her, on June 2nd, 2005, Melanie was arrested after dropping her children off at school and she was taken to the Middlesex County Adult Correctional Center on charges of first degree murder. She was held on a $750,000 bail, which today equates to about $1.04 million, and she was actually able to make her bail. She hired three attorneys and pled not guilty to all of the charges filed against her. However, before her trial, she was actually sent back to jail twice more, once in October 2005, as well as once in October of 2006. However, again, she made bail both times on those as well. I wasn't able to figure out who was paying for her bail each time or who paid it for her. However, each time she was able to make that bail. 
Now, the trial for Bill's murder didn't actually begin until March 5th of 2007. The prosecution took the stance that Melanie had murdered her husband in cold blood in order to start a new life with the man she was having an affair with, Brad. However, the defense painted a very different picture. They claimed that Melanie was completely innocent and that Bill had become increasingly abusive over the years and that he had an alleged gambling addiction and that he actually owed money to someone or had gotten involved in the wrong crowd. And because of that, that is why he was murdered. So basically saying that due to his gambling addiction, he either owed money to the wrong person, got involved with the wrong type of people, and those were the people that ended his life. Now, during the trial, there were other pieces of extremely incriminating evidence that did not help Melanie's case. During the trial, it was revealed that inside of Bill's car, there was a syringe as well as a drug called chloral hydrate. Now, who would have access to a syringe and a prescription drug like that? It's not super far-fetched to think a nurse would. Now, chloral hydrate is known as a knockout drug, and police were able to tell that the chloral hydrate was purchased the day that Bill had apparently gone missing. And when looking to see who filed for the prescription to be filled, it was Brad Miller. However, when looking at the actual prescription order, so you know when doctors have to write the prescription on their pad and they give it to you, they sign it and they do the whole thing, they compared the chloral hydrate prescription pad form to other prescription forms that Brad Miller had made in the past. And it was very clear that Brad did not write the one for the chloral hydrate. Now, the person that the prescription was actually made for was actually a patient of Brad Miller. And she took the stand and she claimed that she never got prescribed the chloral hydrate and that she had never even been to the Walgreens where the prescription was filled. And the prescription was filled at 8.32 a.m. on April 28th, 2004, the last day that Bill was ever seen. And the Walgreens that filled that prescription was actually only eight minutes away from Melanie's son's daycare facility. So the prosecution was theorizing that Melanie had dropped her kids off at daycare and then drove over to the Walgreens where she filled and then picked up the prescription of the chloral hydrate. And this theory was heavily strengthened when the prosecution brought up the Google searches that were found on the McGuire's family desktop. These searches had been made between April 11th and April 26th of 2004, and the searches included undetectable poisons, state gun laws, instant poison, gun laws in Pennsylvania, toxic insulin levels, fatal insulin doses, fatal digoxin doses, how to commit suicide, how to commit murder, sedatives, tranquilizers, barbiturates, pharmacy, chloral hydrate, and Walgreens. And not that they didn't have enough evidence before that pointed in Melanie's direction as to her being responsible for this, those Google searches definitely did it. Now, when it came to the murder weapon, when it came to the gun, like I said, police had never been able to recover the gun. However, they were able to determine that the gun that Melanie had purchased in Pennsylvania was distributed by a company called 
Taurus. Now she purchased a 38 caliber revolver at the gun shop in Pennsylvania, and the medical examiner testified that the bullets found in Bill's body were 38 caliber bullets. And based on the ballistics of the markings, the bullets could have been fired by a gun produced by at least six manufacturers. So that's giving them six different options as to where this gun could have been manufactured. And one of those companies was Taurus. So the trial lasted a little less than two months. And on April 23rd of 2007, Melanie was found guilty of first degree murder, perjury, discretion of human remains, and possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose. Several months after that, on July 19th, 2007, Melanie was sentenced to life in prison when she was just 34 years old. Now, Melanie is still in prison to this day. Obviously, she had a life sentence. However, she still proclaims her innocence. She said that the real killer is still out there and she is not responsible for this. And there are certain people out there that do believe that that is the case. They do believe that it's very possible that Bill could have gotten involved in the wrong crowd, which ultimately ended his life. So I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about it, because that, you guys, is the case of Bill McGuire. So let me know what you guys think in the comments below. And that is all for me today, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. Again, we post weekly every Wednesday on all podcast platforms and on YouTube as well. So you're not gonna wanna miss Killer Instinct Wednesdays. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys. Bye.